Take our minds and think with them, and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for Thee, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Young clergyman, newly graduated from seminary, was conducting his first funeral. Now, first anythings for newly graduated seminarians are fearful occasions. But a funeral is especially so, because if you make a mistake, these people will never forget it. So, he was really delighted when things in church went so well. And after the service, the family, the congregation, the clergy, the local community processed out to the grave, which was just there behind the church. And it came time to say a few words. And and he was encouraged to ad lib it, a bad idea for young clergymen. And he laid his hand on the uh, casket and with whatever gravitas he could collect from the people, he looked at the congregation and then he looked at the casket and he said, the shell remains, but the nut has gone. Well, we are here today to celebrate. I want to take as an outline for my thoughts St. Paul's own address to the elders at the church in Ephesus, where he had served from the autumn of A.D. 52 to the summer of A.D. 55, a time of almost three years. It was the longest that St. Paul would serve any single church, a far cry from my mere 11 months here as intern. And it's best to make our beginning at the end of this story. We read that when St. Paul had finished speaking, the elders of the Ephesian church began to weep aloud. That's not expected, given most people's prejudice against St. Paul as a hard person. But when he left, they wept, and they wept aloud. Tears are fascinating things. About 35 years ago, uh, my father's priest, a friend of mine from seminary by coincidence, was conducting a series of lay addresses during the Lenten season, and he invited my father to be one of the speakers. My father refused. I thought my father would be a great speaker there. I get my gift of speaking from my dad. I'm a mere shadow in comparison. My friend called me and told me he had refused, and so I called dad, and I encouraged him to speak. And he put me off, and he put me off, and finally he told me the truth. He said, Brad, the truth of the matter is that if I got up and spoke on the subject, and the theme of that Lenten series was what the church means to me, I would simply cry because I love my church so much. And I said, Dad, I think you should go ahead and preach that talk. And if you cry, that may be the best sermon they hear all year. Well, Dad didn't speak, and I'm sorry he didn't. But I said to him, Dad, I think that would be the best sermon they would have heard all year, and perhaps the most eloquent one instead. I thought that was wisdom when I said then, and I think it is wisdom now. Now, some of you, I know, will be embarrassed by my tears. I'm frustrated by them, 
but I'm not embarrassed by them, not in the least, whether tears in the pulpit or tears in the pews. When I was seven years old, I began my love affair with books. And the first book I read, and it still continues to be a favorite for me, is Grimm's Fairy Tale. As a seven-year-old, I was introduced to several men who cried publicly and unashamedly. A prince whose kingdom had been stolen by a wicked wizard. A king whose army had been destroyed by marauding giants. A farm boy whose parents had been lost in a flood. And they all cried unashamedly. Later, I was to move on to Greek and Roman myths. And to read these as a boy of eight and nine and ten years old shaped much of my consciousness and thinking. And there I met warriors like Achilles, weeping for his dead friend Patroclus, or Hector, lamenting with tears the destruction of Troy, or Odysseus, sobbing in heartbreaking longing for his son Telemachus. From there I moved on to the medieval legends of Oliver and Roland weeping in one another's arms before they go out to die in battle. Arthur falling into the arms of Sir Percival and weeping for lost Camelot. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight weeping because of the loss of the chivalric crow. And if you had suggested to any of those men that somehow tears were unmanly, they would unhesitatingly cut off your head with their sword. Sadly, I was unable to recruit any of those men to be ushers this morning. <laughs> C.S. Lewis said it best, as he often said most things best, quote, If there is anything about neurotic about adult males in tears, it is the neuroses of our own time of the 20th, 19th and 20th century of men not crying, as opposed to the gallantry of those earlier heroes who knew how to cry. Some people get embarrassed by tears, but Christians should not. As with anything, I'm frustrated with an emotion that makes it hard to speak. I get so moved by some sermon illustrations, I start crying and people go, what, what was the punchline? I missed it. But... I am not ashamed, and I'm not to be pitied for that. I'm, I'm glad of it. Uh, rather, I feel sorry for the minister who one time stood up in church and told the congregation, my friends, I've been speaking to Jesus this last week, and Jesus has been speaking to me hard words, and I believe it's time for me to leave this church. Following the service, I'm tendering my resignation. And he hadn't thought things through, and he turned to the organist, and he said, I think we should sing a, sing a hymn. And the, hymn, the organist wasn't prepared and fumbled with the, uh, with the hymn book and then said, All right, let's stand and sing, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. That's to be pitied in those cases. So a warning to you, when you come to the altar rail, do not expect to hear the communion words of administration. You may not hear them. I'll be choked with emotion that I will simply omit those words, but you know what they mean. But do not understand the tears. They are not tears of loss. They are for me tears of joy. Joy that God has given unto me Poor, weak, pathetic, sinful me to be the instrument of his grace and love to you in so many ways. Do you remember that scene in Chariot of Fire 
when Eric Little, the Scottish missionary who also would go on to the 1932 Olympics in Paris, and he's explaining to his sister Jenny about taking a break from his missionary duties. And he says he's going to come back to the mission field, but first he's going to run in the Olympics. And Jenny chides him and says, we're losing you. He says, but Jenny, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And that's the way I feel. When I run here, I feel his pleasure. And if anyone here in this room is not fully dedicated to the kingdom of God as first, I commend to you Eric Little and my own pathetic example that you feel his pleasure and there is nothing better. All right, enough of that. Let's move on to the text. First of all, in Acts chapter 20, verse 32, Paul writes, And I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. It has been one of the hallmarks of my ministry to have had a passionate commitment to the Bible as the word of God. Do you remember my first sermon on Acts chapter 2, verse 42? And they continued in the apostles' teaching. I was ordained 41 years ago, just about this time. My beloved bishop, Matthew Billiardi, stood before me at my ordination and asked me a series of questions, including this, Will you be diligent in reading the Holy Scriptures and in seeking the knowledge of such as may make you a stronger and more able minister of Christ? And I said, I will. And I've endeavored to fulfill that vow. Perfectly no, but it has been my main intent. It has not only been my main intent to fulfill a vow I made, but also my heart's passion. Indeed, my very calling into the ministry was predicated upon this. There's a wonderful passage, it's a funny passage too, in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9. Jeremiah resigns as a prophet. He says that he writes a resignation letter, in effect. He says, I don't like being a prophet. All the other prophets have good news, I have bad news. Nobody likes me. You, God, said you would protect me, and you're not protecting me. So I'm out of here. I quit. And then right in the middle of this letter of resignation, he says, in effect... Well, I'm really kidding. Um, I'm going to continue to be a prophet. This is the way he put it. But if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is, as it were, fire in my bones, and I am tired of holding it in, and I cannot. And that's the way it is with me. When I read that verse, God called me into the priesthood. So he had fire in his bones. There was an inner compulsion to tell this good news. And there's an inner compulsion in me. I speak it, first of all, because I'm called to do it. Secondly, because I vowed before God to do it. And thirdly, because the world needs this word more than anything else. I preach this word because it is the primary means by which God renews his church. Verse 32, and I commend you to the word of his grace, the scriptures, which is able to build you up. Now, if you want an example of that building up, I would direct you to almost 
any reading of church history. Read the revivals of the church. You know, the church is not always in a state of revival. But read the periods when there is revival, and you will find in every instance accompanying the revival is a dedicated, vigorous, diligent, and scholarly preaching of the Word of God. Read Irenaeus and Ignatius and Polycarp, those sub-apostolic fathers of the second century. Read of Bishop John Christ of Constantinople, whose preaching was so fabulous that he was nicknamed Golden Tongue, or in the Greek, Chrysostom. Read the Franciscan and Dominican preachers who burst upon a corrupt, decadent, and lost church in the 13th century, or those glorious reformers of the 16th century who lit the torch in country after country with the light of the gospel. Read, and I think in some ways the highest point of English-speaking spirituality, the great Puritans, English Puritans, and the revival they brought, not just to the big cities, but to the villages and towns and countryside. And yes, Richard Baxter, too. Or the two Wesleys and John George Whitfield, of all of whom visited and brought the gospel to this country of America. Or the two great awakenings in America, one in the 18th and one in the 19th century. The first great awakening providing the moral rigor for our revolution. The second great awakening providing the moral vigor behind the abolition of slavery. Or just within the last 50 years, the great East African revival and the explosion of the African church on the East Coast, which was so great that one bishop, Anglican Bishop Alfred Stanway, the founding bishop of Trinity School for Ministry, founded one new church per week for 20 years of his episcopate. And so I preach this word. And as Paul commended the elders, I commend you to that word. I commend to you that word because it's not a given. It's because we go to church. There's people who hate this word. There are people who want to seduce that word and bastardize it and prostitute it for their own purposes. Paul warned about that, and it's true today. He says in verse 29, I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come down upon you, not sparing the flock. And even among your own selves will a wise man speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after him. Now, what do they mean, fierce wolves? What Paul had in mind was those ministers who take the authority and the dignity of the Word of God and put it to the service, not of the kingdom of God, but to the service of their own personal callings and personal agendas. These are people who support their own agendas, not God's agenda. They want to take Scripture to be cut up in a kind of a Bartlett book of quotation and then to fortify their own social agendas and sexual agendas, their economic agendas and political agendas. In the very first sermon I preached before this congregation, I promised that I would never do that. I do not even have a bumper sticker on my car, and I never will. Now, in private conversations... I have shared those opinions, but never as a priest, never as a minister of the Word. I have endeavored from this pulpit or from the, using the office authority not to promote my agenda. If I've done that by accident, I'm sorry. 
Such people take the name of the Lord in vain. Such people are wolves. There is one such person who has taken Scripture and used it in such a fashion to do exactly that. A bishop in the Episcopal Church has written... um, It's a long quote. I'm going to stop it. But there was one minister who said uh, along the way, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's true. Friends, when we say that, we have lost the ability to stand in any decent way along the way. You know, as though we purpose of theology is to sit down and have a rap session. You know, what do you think about God? What do you think about morality? What do you think about abortion? What do you think about extramarital sex? As though it's an opinion. Some years ago, I sat down and I did a reflection on my ministry. I have sporadically kept a spiritual journal through the years. And at that time, I wrote these words, quote, I have consistently taught a religion which, three things, which claims to be true and not merely enjoyable or useful, which asks people to think and not just to tremble and glow, which bases itself on a book that can be argued about, explored with the mind, not an experience which convinces only the individual who has had it. You recognize that priority in my pulpit prayer. Take my words and speak with them. Take our minds and think with them. And therefore, like Paul, I commend to you the word of his grace, which does two things. Paul says it's able to build up. It's able to discover within you those potentialities of the image of God which is buried in you and encrusted by sin and and habits of flat living. This word is able to call out of you aspirations you never thought you could achieve, abilities for relationships that you thought were lost in the past, and a sense of service, commitment, teaching, and authority which you admired in others but never thought you could have yourself. The word is able to build you up. Secondly, Paul says, and to give you the inheritance of those who are being sanctified, that is, the saints, the, the, the people of God, that is us, that is the church. I, we sang as our communion hymn, it was not an accident. I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode. The church, our blessed Redeemer, saved with his most precious blood. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend, for her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. What else in creation is worth all of the self but the church of Jesus Christ? The church is the community in which the inheritance comes. And the inheritance, my friends, you know this, is life. You see, God wants to give us his life, Zoe. We are in a world, and you must know this, in which there's too much death, death of every kind, death of body, death of spirit, death of mind, death of families, death of friendship, death of visions, death of hope, death of joy. But Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. 
And the primary tool, together with the sacraments, by which he gives us this life is his word. And if we have not the life, it is because we have not given ourselves to the word. So, I commend you, both this congregation and the leadership of this congregation, to the word of God and his grace. Paul goes on to write in verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching in public and in house to house of repentance of God and of Jesus Christ. You see, that's the importance of the world. In and of itself, the word is only a means. We don't worship a book. We worship the God to whom the book directs us. The book's focus is Jesus Christ. It brings him into focus. And Jesus Christ is the one who brings God into focus. And if we would know God, we must know this book. And the scriptures point us to Jesus Christ. Last autumn, I think, I preached a sermon in which I mentioned a book by W.H. Griffith Thomas. It's wonderfully entitled, Christianity is Christ. Isn't that a great title? Just the title's worth the price of the, of the book. There's a lot that we do as Christians, especially we as Anglicans, that's confusing, and I know that. You, know, you newcomers are constantly baffled by the terminology we use in church, the language of Zion, architectural terms, liturgical terms, names for the vessels up here. But let's make it easy Christianity is about Christ. And that's what I've tried to be about too. Like Paul, I've labored day and night. And I've done it publicly and I've done it house to house and room to room. I've been in some of your homes. But the one thing I've tried to do, and in a sense the only thing I've tried to do, is to point Jesus, to point people to Jesus Christ. Like John the Baptist who stood on the river and pointed and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the face of God who wants to make himself known to you. Behold the mercy of God who can remove all the hurt and pain from your past. Behold the friendship of God who would take you and raise you up and make you like himself. Behold the one in whom all of us and without whom none of us will find fulfillment and purpose. Christianity is Christ. You see, I love Jesus, and I want you to love him too. Will you permit me to quote from Richard Baxter? He wrote, Christ is the beauty of all that is beautiful, the strength of all that is strong, and the glory of the sun and all that is glorious, and the wisdom of all that is wise, and the goodness of all that is good as being the only total, true cause of it all. Jesus. That's what I've tried to hold up before you. Not some Sunday school figure that can be disposed of and then move on, but Jesus. Jesus. Just to say His name is a prayer. Yeah, Yahweh. Sua. Salvation. The Lord is our salvation, or the Lord saves. And is any one of us so secure that we do not need saving? Is any one of us so knowledgeable that we do not need Him? 
And to be a Christian is not to buy a ticket for salvation and put it in your pocket and go about life's business until death. To be a Christian is to be like that little boy who goes down to the seashore with his shovel in his bucket. All of that to be explored. The wonder of Him. To know Him. Doesn't anyone, every one of us long to love and to be loved? And we're better to begin and to return than in Him who is the expression of the love of God. Thirdly, Paul says in his farewell address, verse 35, help the weak. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, how He said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. We have begun in this church to become a mission-minded church. I am delighted with the establishment and the activity and the vision of our missions committee. Uh, We will be learning more about that under the guidance of your new rector, but get involved with that. This is what Paul said. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Before he was executed in the year 1556, the writer, architect of our Book of Common Prayer, Archbishop Thomas Cramner, And one week from today, I will be in the church where he was tried and then was let out and was executed minutes later. I will stand right at the pillar where that happened. I actually gave a little talk, and I have it on tape. Not that they had tape recording in 1556, but people wrote it down, collected it, and then some English actor produced it. It's it's remarkable. But the most astonishing thing in that address to me was the fact that here's the man at looking at dying and dying painfully, being burned to death in a matter of 30 minutes. And he so had the love of Christ in his heart that he could say, remember the poor. He could say to them, and this above all else, for it utmost pleaseth the heart of our dear Savior to remember the poor and the needy whom God loveth so. Let's be that church. So like St. Paul, I commend to you the support of our outreach. We believe in an apostolic church that is a church that goes out. That's what the word apostolic means. God is mission-minded. God so loved the world that He sent. And Jesus was the first missionary And the work of the Holy Spirit is conversion. That's why he says it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so you are twice blessed. So remember the poor. It pleases his heart. Fourth, and lastly, at the end of St. Paul's address, the people wept, it is said, because Paul said they would see his face no more. Now, we don't know how Paul knew that. Uh, Perhaps there was some charismatic prophet in the crowd like Agabus who jumped up in the middle of a prayer meeting and declared it. Perhaps Paul had a dream or a vision of his own. Perhaps it was just the logic of his mission that he was planning on going to Jerusalem and then to Rome and Spain and points west and north. But whatever the plan was, Paul was wrong. Because we have evidence and reason to believe that Paul did make one more brief visit back to the church of Ephesus. All I can say about myself is that you will see my face again. To quote St. Paul, 
the Spirit testifies it to me. Last page. And I come to the end of my sermon. And I wonder how to conclude it. Every preacher knows, who knows his business, knows that the last sentence said in a sermon or address is sometimes the most important sentence. I have not infrequently come to this pulpit with nothing on paper except the first and the last sentence of a sermon, and sometimes only the last sentence. So in closing, and by the way, did you hear the definition of an optimist in church? One woman's definition, an optimist, she said, is a parishioner who, when the preacher says, now in closing, puts her shoes back on. Well, you can put your shoes back on. The last sentence of the last sermon. And as so often been my case in practice and want in times past, now I take upon my lips, not my own words, but the words of that great theologian and pastor, that deeply Christ-centered, that deeply Spirit-filled, that deeply God-committed person, pastor and theologian, Paul the Apostle. And I make his words the last words that I will preach from this pulpit, which I have so loved. Now, and for this proves to me the richness and the fitness of Scripture for every occasion. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance of those who are being sanctified. To him be the glory and the praise in the church and in Christ Jesus our Lord forever and ever. Amen.